guys are here this morning against all odds. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, we've jumped forward an hour and you've weathered a winter rainstorm to get here. And so I want to honor that and jump right into the word. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. Get to jump back into our study that we've been in, in the book of 1 Peter as a church. In 1 Peter 3, we're going to be in verse 8 this morning. And we'll go all the way down to verse 22. We've got our work cut out for us this morning. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. Let's read that. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's go to God again. Lord, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the privilege to submit our lives under your word. God, we pray for you to meet us this morning with what you have for us in this passage. God, make us teachable, make us humble before you, make us receptive uh, to all that you call us to in the Christian life. We thank you for the good news of Christ for us. We pray all this in his name, amen. Well, many of our, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world live in places where there is uh, open hostility toward them for their faith. 
You know, we can think of the underground church in China where church members are regularly rounded up and they're taken to, to brainwashing camps where they're challenged to, you know, renounce their faith. We can think of house church leaders in Iran who even now as we gather this morning sit on death row and, and await uh, their execution for evangelizing Muslims. When we think about our brothers and sisters around the world, we can think of those in Colombia who are targeted by criminal groups because they speak out against violence and corruption that they see. And then we look at how freely we ourselves are able to worship here in the United States. You know, we've, even this morning, we've gathered without being hassled by the police, unless you got pulled over on your way here, um, and that one is completely on you. But we were able to gather freely. We're able to, to evangelize in our neighborhoods, within our extended families, in, our, in these third places of gyms and coffee shops. But even with all this being the case, we should see that this passage this morning about persecution has relevance for us. Because while we may enjoy these things now, we do not know what the future holds. That could mean increasing social marginalization for particular uh, views that we have that run contrary to the ideologies of the day. Or who knows what, what the future might hold even as it relates to your personal family. You know, maybe... Uh, the Lord is going to call you to serve him as a missionary overseas. Maybe you will end up in one of these countries where there is open hostility to Christians. We don't know what the future holds. But this passage that we have for us this morning, it's going to prepare us for whatever that future may be. It's going to prepare us for any persecution that we might face for the name of Jesus Christ. And so if you'll remember, we've been walking through this section in 1 Peter that started back in, in chapter 2, verse 12, with a call to live honorably among unbelievers. We've seen that in various less than ideal situations, God can use our Christ-honoring response to lead others to honor Christ in their own hearts. And in this passage in 8 through 22 in chapter 3 today, it really kind of serves as a transition to the verses that are going to run all the way through the end of chapter four. Peter kind of gathers up all of these exhortations that he's made from this previous section, and he puts a bow on things by communicating that Christians can bless those who persecute them because there is a reward coming and they will ultimately triumph and be vindicated. We as Christians, we can bless those who persecute us because there is a reward coming and we will ultimately triumph and be vindicated. And so when we're thinking about this, these verses here, we can understand this passage through the lens of the Christian's response, the Christian's reward, and the Christian's encouragement. Response, reward, and encouragement. First, let's think about the Christian's response. Look at verse eight and nine again with me. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
after dealing with relationships in the household in chapter three, verses one through seven, Peter turns to relationships within the household of faith in verse eight. And he briefly sets out this picture of a healthy household of faith, that it's gonna be a place where these five characteristics that he lays out will be present, that the church will be a place of harmony. And then in verse nine, he looks outside of the church to how these believers that he's writing to should respond to those who are persecuting them. And look what he says. He says that Christians are called to respond to persecution with blessing, with blessing. There is a a distinctly Christian response to being slandered for one's faith, a distinctly Christian response to being mistreated for one's faith, a distinctly Christian response to being marginalized in society for one's faith in Jesus. We bless in the face of cursing. Rather than retaliating, we pursue peace. And you might be hearing that and you, and you probably realize that it doesn't take long to realize just how radical this uh, way of living one's life actually is. There is a natural human urge within us to retaliate when we think that we have been mistreated. You know, we can think of, uh, maybe this is just me and not you guys, maybe you're more sanctified than I, but I can think of being even at Walmart and you're pushing the buggy and someone pulls out in front of you and my urge is to just ram their cart. What is that about? Like there is a deep kind of human urge to retaliate when we feel like we've been mistreated. And so where does Peter get this radical idea that runs counter to that, this radical idea of blessing those who curse us? Does he dredge it up from the writings of a philosopher or a mystic of his day? Does it come from some internal weakness that he has? Or does it come from a fear of confrontation that he harbors? No, it's, it's none of these things. He gets this very idea from Jesus himself. We can think of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus establishes the kingdom ethic that he is ushering in. He's preaching to his followers about what it will look like to be his disciples, what it's gonna look like to follow him. And he only gets a few sentences into the Sermon on the Mount before he speaks these words. In Matthew 5, 43 through 44, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who would abuse you. This is a radical response. We see that. Paul carries Jesus' words with him as well in Romans chapter 12, where he writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Peter is a kind of signal amplifier of Jesus's message. He brings Jesus's own words to bear on the reader's situation of facing persecution. And seeing this idea of blessing one's persecutors peppered throughout the New Testament, we see it in Jesus and Paul and here in Peter, it helps us understand that 
This radical idea, this seemingly radical idea of blessing those who curse us is really basic Christianity. It's something that all Christians are called to. And it's something that's kind of easy to understand at face value. We know what Jesus is saying. We know what Peter is saying. But what we also know is that this is incredibly difficult to do. This is incredibly difficult to do. Sometimes the most basic things are like that. They are the most difficult things to do. All the parents who got their kids dressed and out the door this morning, you can say amen to this. Some of the most basic things are the most difficult. Uh, Blessing those who curse us is simply not the way that we and our flesh would choose to respond to someone. It feels unjust to us. How can we possibly overlook someone wronging us? How can we keep from telling them off? It's clear this is a supernatural thing. It's clear that this response of blessing, it can only flow from a life that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Christians, it's true that we can only bless because we are heirs of blessing in the gospel. The call to bless originates there. It originates in being heirs of blessing. Had we not been born again to a living hope, as 1 Peter 1 says, if we had not been born again to an inheritance kept in heaven for us, as 1 Peter 1 says, we could not respond in this way. Yet that has happened for us. We have been born again to this living hope. And so we can be channels of blessing to those who would persecute us. We are connected to Christ. We are heirs of blessing. In fact, verses 10 through 12 emphasize this reality. It's quoting from Psalm 34, when David praised God for his deliverance, and he recognized that the rightful response to God rescuing him was that he would live a righteous life, a life full of goodness, a life in which he refused to curse his enemies. He would turn away from evil and pursue peace. To capture it in one word, a life that blesses. That's what we're after. It's amazing to see figures in the early church live this way, to see kind of how deeply they had taken to heart Jesus' ethic of responding to cursing with blessing. Think of Stephen, the early Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. He's being stoned, and right before he breathes his last, as he's being stoned to death, he utters this prayer. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He echoes Jesus' very words on the cross here when Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is blessing in the face of cursing. And we know as we read on in the story of Stephen that, that Paul, who was Saul at the time, was present for this, that he sanctioned Stephen's killing. And he would then become the answer to Stephen's prayer. Stephen blessed his persecutors and it led to Paul glorifying God. This is amazing. So will you be slandered for following Christ? Perhaps. Let that be an opportunity to speak well of your Savior. Will you be socially marginalized and and even mistreated because holding to biblical truth makes you out of step 
with the ideologies of the day, perhaps let that be an opportunity to show love to those who may see you as bigoted and small-minded. Let that be a chance to respond with words that are seasoned with the salt of the gospel, words that carry life rather than death. So there is a distinctly Christian response to persecution. We see it in verse nine. But what keeps the Christian going and responding to cursing with blessing and walking this out? How can this response possibly be sustained over a lifetime? We see it in the next paragraph. Look there with me, read, reading in verses 13 through 14. It says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Christians can bless those who persecute them because there is a reward coming. There is a future tense in Peter's words there, will be blessed. There's a coming reward. It's talking about the blessing of eternal life on the last day. Jesus spoke of this coming reward as well in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5:10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We may suffer for the name of Christ in this life, but we will have eternal life with Christ in the next. Persecution comes to an end. Enjoying Christ's presence in eternity does not. That's what he's after here. Uh, there, there's an amazing book uh, that you may be familiar with. I think it's, it's a book that all Christians should try to get their hands on at some point in their walk with the Lord. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a book a long time ago. Someone kind of put together um, all of these different accounts of those who had uh, suffered for their faith in Christ throughout Christian history. And it's always being updated with kind of modern day examples of this too. Uh, but it's, it's this resource. It's filled with stories of Christ followers who wholeheartedly believed this, who wholeheartedly believed that there was a coming reward that made it possible for them to bless those who persecuted them now in this life. They were believers who understood that future reward inspires our present response to persecution. And it's a present response that also entails honoring Christ. Look, look in verse 14, the second half there. It says, have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We're told in, in those verses, we're, we're not to fear what might happen at the hands of persecutors. After all, they, they cannot ultimately harm you. That's what he's after in verse 13. He's saying, don't fear man. Instead, focus your energy on revering God. We can even see a play on words there in Peter's words, that there's a good kind of fear. There's this lesser known, this lesser understood idea of reverence, 
a reverence for God, a posture of honoring Christ rather than fearing men. And these words, they're quoted from Isaiah chapter 8, where the Lord was preparing the prophet Isaiah and the remnant of Judah for a coming Assyrian invasion where they were going to be taken off into exile. And God, in talking to Isaiah, he tells them not to fear what is coming as those in the northern kingdom of Israel do, but instead they are to honor as holy the Lord of hosts. This is what Peter is drawing on here. We can see the parallel to his audience too. They are going to be those who are tempted to fear what their persecutors might do to them. But there's a better path. There is honoring Christ. And I think it's worthwhile even here to stop and consider uh, the fear of man in our own lives. You know, so often this is something that we as Christians talk about keeping us It keeps us from being bold witnesses to the good news of the gospel, that we are afraid of what might come to us from other people if we are bold about who Jesus is, if we call people to put their faith in Jesus, if we point to his exclusivity that you can only know God through him. But what we see here are are words that give us hope that we can overcome this fear that we have of men that the key to doing so is that we would honor Christ more greatly in our hearts, that we would see him as worthy of our lives, of, our, of everything that we have, and that it would lead us to a boldness in the face of the fear of man. And so this parallel is there, that they should honor Christ as opposed to fear what man might bring to them. And then the rest of verses 15 through 16, you could preach a whole sermon on just these two verses and we just don't have all the time that we need to cover them this morning. But in these verses, he shows uh, that the response of honoring Christ, the Lord is holy. It's gonna lead to sharing the hope that is in us. This might be one of the most tangible ways that we bless those who would curse us, that we bless those who mistreat us for our faith is through sharing the hope of the gospel with them. That even as we would be reviled, even as we would endure evil from their hands, we would be able to lift Jesus up to them and say, he is still worthy. He is still worthy. I'm not going to respond in kind because I see him as such. We have an incredible occasion when we find ourselves uh, suffering at the hands of others for the name of Christ to lift Christ up more and more highly. And so this section in 13 through 17, it it reveals that Christians can bless now because they know that they will obtain the ultimate blessing then. There's a coming reward. And then look at our last paragraph where we see that Christians can bless those who persecute them because they will ultimately triumph and be vindicated. They will triumph and be vindicated. In verse 18 Peter turns to the example of Christ to encourage his readers. This is the Christian's encouragement in the face of persecution. He says that following in Jesus's steps means that our suffering will lead to exaltation. That just as Christ suffered and was then exalted, so we will suffer and then be exalted. And verse 18, it grounds our confidence in that truth. Let's read verse 18 again. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ's unique suffering unlocks the door to hope and encouragement for us. Uh, one, one pastor called this verse in 18, uh, he called it a little gospel pillow for us, which I love that mental image. It's meant to provide a comfort and encouragement to Christians facing persecution. In this verse, we see Christ's substitutionary death at the cross. This truth that, that on the cross, Christ has taken the place of sinners, that he has once for all atoned for sins, and that this work of his at the cross has reconciled the unrighteous to the righteous one. This is at the heart of the gospel. And we see that Christ's unique suffering, it guarantees that all who follow him will triumph over death. We will triumph over death. And it also guarantees that, that all who follow him will triumph over their enemies, over those who have persecuted them in this life. This is what verses 19 through 21 are getting at. A few verses that uh, have probably had more ink spilled over them than any other verses in the New Testament. There's a lot going on. You probably picked up on that as we read through it in these verses. And so we can't cover all the views, and there are many uh, from Christians who love the Lord, who hold a high view of Scripture. Um, and so we hold our view with you know, a, a certain level of charity. Uh, but our driving concern as we look at verses 19 through 21 is with how these verses would have supported the point that Peter is making. He's making this point about enduring suffering for the name of Christ. And with that in our minds, it's likely in these verses of 19 through 21 that he's referring to Christ proclaiming his triumph over evil spirits and fallen angels. If you remember in the days of Noah, as we look back at the beginning of Genesis, things had gotten really bad. They had gotten so bad there was so much wickedness on earth that even angels were having sexual relations with humans. And this event in Genesis chapter 6, it accelerated God's judgment on his creation. God would bring judgment through the flood. But we know, if we know the story of Noah, that he would leave a remnant on earth. Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives, eight people, would be brought safely through the waters of judgment that he would bring. And Peter seems to be saying that, that his readers are like those eight, that just as God judged the wicked and sheltered Noah and his family from judgment, these believers can trust that God will do the same for them. He will bring rescue to them. He will shelter them from the judgment. And he will wash away those who are unrepentant, those who refuse to call out upon him. And, and baptism that it brings up there is this symbol uh, that, that we are united to Christ and that we will be saved. You know, when we look at the, the story of Noah, being in the ark is what saved them. That's what brought them rescue. And for us, being in Christ now is what saves us. 
It's what brings us rescue. This being in Christ that verse 18 says has been made possible through Christ's atoning work at the cross. That is what saves us now from the coming judgment. And so he's not talking about baptism, the act itself saving them. You know, even referring to baptism at that time, it was so closely wedded to one's conversion that they were almost seen as one and the same. And so he's not saying that uh, baptism itself is what saves us. He rules that out when he writes that it's not a removal of dirt from the body. But what he is saying is that one's baptism symbolizes this reality that we are pledged to Christ, that we belong to Christ. And those who belong to Christ do not have to fear the judgment that is to come. Those believers, they will join Jesus who has risen from the dead. We this morning will join Jesus who has risen from the dead. And as verse 22 says, this Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. If we are united with Christ this morning, then we can be confident that just as he triumphed over his enemies, that just as he was vindicated in their sight in his resurrection, so we too will triumph over our enemies. We will be vindicated on the last day when Christ puts his enemies under his feet. And this doesn't you know, abdicate our responsibility for holding the good news of the gospel out here and now. But what it does is it provides a comfort to those who would persecute for the name of Christ in this life. And we should see how encouraging this would have been to a persecuted minority like Peter's audience. God is not gonna overlook this persecution they are enduring. He's going to judge unrepentant persecutors. And so these truths, they, they let believers go on blessing those who would persecute them without having to fear what might happen. You can see that God is the one who holds the scales, that he is a God of justice. And so just as Jesus in chapter 2, verse 23, entrusted himself to God who judges justly when he went to the cross, we in this world, if we endure suffering, and persecution can entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. There's a lot here to chew on in this passage. If you want to talk about the strangeness of 19 through 21, come and talk to me. I've got plenty to, to chew on uh, in on offline conversations. But as we, as we close this, this morning, the exhortation for us is really simple from these, these words in this passage. It's look to Christ. Look to Christ, the, the triumphant, the vindicated, the exalted one. You will follow him. The exhortation is look to the reward of eternal life with Christ. You will enjoy that reward in its fullness. And let these future blessings, this coming reward, this coming triumph, let it motivate your efforts to bless those who may persecute you for your faith in this life. Father God, we thank you, God, that your word is evergreen, Lord. 
that it holds a relevance for our lives at every turn, God. No matter where we may find ourselves in our journey with Christ, we are either being met in that moment with the words of scripture or we are being prepared for a moment yet to come, Lord. And so let us this morning internalize these words in chapter three, God. Let us see that we can be those who bless in the face of cursing because we are heirs of blessing in the gospel. God, what a, what a profound truth in itself, Lord, that, that we broken, jacked up people have had salvation held out to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God, we are so unworthy of this. And yet what, what you so often remind us of is that you, you keep blessing on top of that being heirs of blessing. God, you let us now be channels of your blessing to others in this world, God. And so would you make us quick to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God, would you make us ready to put the hope of the gospel on display, even to those who would mock us, who would ridicule us, God. Embolden us for that. Put to death the fear of man in us. And sustain us, God, as we think on all that is yet to come for us as believers. God, we will be caught up with you in the air, scripture tells us, released from the pain and the suffering of this world as we're called into the presence of Christ. Let our eyes drift towards that future often and let it ground our feet now in the present as we aim to honor Christ in all of life love you, Father. We thank you for Christ. We pray all this in his name.